And again, if you'd stay in John chapter 8 this morning, we want to kick off Advent. This is one of those peculiar Decembers of 2018 where there are five Sundays in the month. And so I'll get to preach to you four times. And so we're going to look at this morning in John 8. I wanted to kind of set this up. Believe it or not, it was my desire to preach this particular sermon two weeks ago to you. But unfortunately, the water froze here at the church and we couldn't have our service. But I didn't want to not preach this sermon. And the title of it, if you have a bulletin, is labeled A Pre-Christmas Warning About Unbelief. A Pre-Christmas Warning About Unbelief. And over the next few Sundays, we're going to look at some of the characters of Christmas. And we're going to see the difference between belief and unbelief at Christmas. But Let me set up this Christmas season for us by saying this. I don't know if you've noticed, but here we are. It's December 2nd of 2018, and Christmas is in full steam. The decorations are on display. The music has started everywhere you go. Lights are all ablaze in the city, and they've been turned on, and toys And other gift ideas dominate catalogs and flyers and store window decorations. And yet, I don't know if you've noticed it, but I have, maybe more acutely than ever before, there's a strange paradox that's also started. Have you noticed it? Have you seen it? Think about it. A tug of war has begun that will rage for the next 29 to 30 days. It's Jesus versus Santa Claus. It's Merry Christmas versus Happy Holidays. Church services versus office parties. Family versus friends. Time versus money. Memories versus gifts. There will be a collision over the next 20-odd days of ideology and goals and desires of hopes, dreams, and plans. Now, don't get me wrong, church. Without a doubt, more people over the next four weeks will be more willing to accept an invitation to church than probably any time in the year. Maybe many of you are going to go to a Christmas play or a musical event or a choir performance. And all of you of parents of young children will also get a front seat to this real-life tug-of-war that happens at Christmas. Because you will attend or have already attended recitals and plays in both schools and concerts and all these things. And there will be at these recitals, right, renditions of Away in a Manger like we sang, right alongside All I Want for Christmas is My Two Front Teeth. And your little silent giggles tell me I'm right. You'll see Santa and baby Jesus. You'll see mangers and elves. And then along that, let's get into the modern world, there'll be Snoopies and Minions all dressed up in the colors of the season. But I don't want you to, for one second to think that we here in this room are not caught up in this war of culture, of truth over fiction, between Jesus is the reason for the season that Brother Jeff prayed and yet the nostalgia and expectations of family and co-workers of employees and friends, and for some of you, for your classmates. But can I challenge you by asking you a few questions on December the 2nd with 23 days before Christmas Day? How busy are you going to be this Christmas? What will your priorities be this Christmas? How much money are you going to spend this Christmas? Maybe what money have you already spent in preparations for this Christmas? You see, the sad tragedy is by the time we land on January 1st, 
we will once again see the after effects and the hangover of this tug of war. Jesus or the world. But amazingly, here in church, in this church, at Calvary Baptist Church, we are going to struggle with this as well. That great dilemma. Every one of you at some point over the next 20 odd days will wrestle with this phrase. Can't I have Jesus with the world? And that, my friends, was the dilemma of the audience you just read about and Brother Steve preached or read from over 2,000 years ago. You see, back in Jesus' day, only six months before he would die, folks in Jesus' day liked him. He was fascinated and made, people were fascinated by him. Many people were curious. Some were even fanatical. If you remember back only in John chapter 5, after Jesus had performed this miracle, there was a mob ready to make him king by force. And yet, by the time you get to John chapter 8, back in John 7, his family turned against him with demands for signs and wonders. The crowd, while still curious and fascinated, they've also turned because now they're much more demanding. You see, they've got a view of Jesus that they would like and his worth and value and need was based on his performing according to their view. And then on top of all that, now in John 8, as you've seen it, the religious crowd have moved in. And in the first seven chapters of John, the religious crowd have really kind of operated as the Muppet judges. You know who I'm talking about? Those two judges in the Muppets. Do you remember those guys? Raise your hands. Admit it. There you go. Those Muppet judges, the guys that sat up there, the two old guys that just passed off these sarcastic, critical comments about everything. And through the first seven chapters of John, the religious crowd have mostly been like Muppet judges, observing, pompous, judging. But now, everything's going to change. And that's why I've called it The de-evolution of unbelief. You see, in John 8, they went from intellectual inquisition to the posture of prosecutor and judge. They moved from questions and demands to accusations and ill intentions. And ultimately, this will climax with a crucifixion. Which, by the way, is exactly the opposite of John's intention for you and I, not only in his gospel, but for Christmas. See, never forget why John the Apostle writes his gospel. Do you remember it? You know you do, right? John chapter 20, 30 and 31. You guys can probably quote it from memory. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. John 8, 12 to 20 are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and here's the result of that. And so that by believing, you may have life in His name. See, the Apostle John wants you and I here in December 2nd of 2018 to see the crowd, to see the religious establishment for who and what they are, where they're going to end up. And then under inspiration of God, John chooses seven signs and seven I am statements of Jesus. And they're woven among the people's lives. Many of these are faceless and nameless. And we've already studied them. Remember, there was back at the wedding feast where Jesus turned water into wine. And don't miss that the water was purification water. It was where you went to be reminded you would never be perfect. And Jesus takes what was a reminder of your imperfection, turns it into wine and says, feast and be glad. And then there was a healed son of a nobleman, followed by a paralyzed man who was paralyzed for 38 years. And then there was that Samaritan female outcast. There was thousands fed with five loaves and few fishes. Then the Sea of Galilee and nature itself was tamed and a victimized woman at the end of John 7 into John 8 was saved. Back in John 3, even a searching religious leader named Nicodemus who came under the cover of night. And so the Apostle John wants you and I to see them, to identify with them, to see how their lives were changed and how your life can be changed as well. But 
the juxtaposition of that is John 8. See, John chapter 8 is one of the most daunting, sober, warning chapters in the New Testament. I challenge you to read it. You will not get the warm and fuzzies. And I want you to listen to me. Jesus is going to declare to his audience, as you already saw it in John chapter 8, verse 19, that many of his audience was going to die in their sin. This is the warning as a pre-Christmas warning. So as we begin the Christmas season of 2018, where the reality is our hearts emotioned are heightened, they are. Last night, Brother Darren came over to our home and we were able to take family photos for Christmas and had all of our family there and it was fun to do it. And I was watching Darren just take all these candid photos and I had a moment where I just stood in the kitchen watching my family laugh and interact and it's just neat to be caught up in all of the emotions of Christmas. Don't deny it. We all want it. We all long for it. And so our hearts and emotions are heightened. Our minds will drift towards the spiritual, even religious things. But as we go into Christmas of 2018, I want you to take a lesson from this passage A warning about unbelief. A warning about trying to have Jesus and the world to those around us and to us personally. So let's look at our passage again. John chapter 8. And be reminded that in verse 12, Jesus makes this proclamation. I am the light of the world. (laughs) And remember, put that in the greater narrative. Remember I've told you that this was the end of the Feast of Booths. In just six short months, Jesus would hang on a tree crucified from these events. And we see a change in the book of John. It goes from controversy to confrontation via the religious leaders of Jerusalem. And you'll also notice a very distinct change in Jesus. Jesus will now move from being on the defense to moving to being on the offense. He moves from defending himself to demanding answers from the crowd and the religious. In fact, as we are going to see early in 2019 as God gives it to us, if you take the time to read John 8, you'll find very two interesting versions of Jesus. You'll find in verses 21 and onward two types of Jesus. The version of Jesus you probably never knew. And the Jesus no one likes to talk about. Those are going to be my first two sermons in 2019. You see, over the next 20 odd days, most of pop culture will watch Christmas movies. And one of them might be a pop culture movie called Talladega Nights. In which in that movie, one of the characters makes this statement. I like the baby Jesus version of Jesus. And that's the world. They like baby Jesus. Many people like soft-spoken, loving Jesus. Some people like healing Jesus or miracle Jesus. Some people, if they claim to be spiritual, might say, well, I'm really drawn to the Jesus that hangs on the cross or the Jesus that rises from the dead. Some people love victorious Jesus and some people want, what I've, you've heard me say is that term, country music Jesus, right? Come to Jesus and you get your, your dog back and your marriage back and your wife back and your house back and all these types of things. But few of us think about or embrace or talk about Jesus' authority. Or when Jesus says, I'm in charge of your life. Or when Jesus says, I will tell you what's wrong with your life. But church, listen, if you follow, pray to, listen and obey Jesus, your life will be forever changed into His image and you'll never regret it. Amen? Oh, Mary, it's good to hear your voice, my darling. And this is the reason I hope you'll take from this passage this morning and into the Christmas season. Listen, following Jesus and submitting to Jesus and trusting Jesus is the greatest decision of life change you'll ever make. But if you choose to doubt and question and ignore or always take this posture that I can demand from Jesus, then trust me, you're going to end up here in John 8 over a period of time. 
Because my first point for you to take away as a pre-Christmas morning is this. Fascination without commitment will always lead to accusation. So fascination with Jesus without commitment to Jesus will always lead you to accusation against Jesus. And you see this in our passage. Don't forget what Jesus has just declared in John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. And I spent a whole sermon on this with you because light is a massive subject of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. You remember again, right? The Bible never attempts to convince you on the existence of God. Have you ever noticed that? When you open up the Bible in Genesis 1-1, it just says, in the beginning, God. It doesn't try to convince you of His existence. It assumes it because it's a book by the author, God Himself. In the beginning, what, what God created. And what did He say? Let there be light. And all the way then to Revelation, there is this light theme in the Bible. God said, let there be light. And in the end of the Bible, in Revelation, we're told that Jesus is present with the bride of Christ in the New Jerusalem. You remember what it says? And the city in Revelation 21 has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light all will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. Notice, for there is no night there. John the Apostle has told us from the very beginning of the, apostle, of the Gospel of John, of his writing in John 1, 8, 1 through 18, that Jesus was indeed the light of the world. Remember what he said? In him, Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. And here's the reality. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. But in that same opening introduction, John tells us about truth and promise combined. Because John says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And then John points out the responses. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet negative. The world did not know him. I think one of the greatest tragic sentences of the Bible, he came unto his own and his own people did not receive him. But here's the positive, here's the promise. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so, when the audience that was there in John 8 in the first century heard Jesus say, I am the light of the world. He was using this strange Greek construction. It's called ego emi, which literally means I am, I am. Or it can be translated, Jesus says, I am who I am. I am the light of the world. It's the great name that God claimed of himself in the Old Testament. The Pharisees understood it right away. And so they say, what is it? You're saying that by yourself. Therefore, your witness is not true. They knew full well that Jesus was claiming to be God, and so they're discounting Jesus' testimony about himself. Now notice, on the ground that there was no corroborating witness. That's what it said in 13 and 14. But then they step, went a step further, and instead of just saying Jesus' testimony was inadmissible, they go a step further and said, you're, you're basically lying. Your testimony is false. They accuse the one who is the very incarnation of truth in John 1 of being an actual liar. This is what unbelief will do to you over time. And this is what happens when you get into the pattern of making Jesus answer life's questions on your terms. Richard Phillips in his commentary says, The Pharisees were sure that a true Messiah would be one who agreed with their point of view and fulfilled their own particular idea of salvation. And from that perspective, they stood in judgment of the Son of God so as to reject Him. Oh, church, listen to me. Be careful this Christmas not to fall into the trap that you think Jesus must conform to your point of view. So did you notice just what religious and the people have done? When they accuse Jesus of being a liar, I love this. J.M. Boyce gives us some insight, like, think about yourself. Put yourself where Jesus was. Let's just think about this. If you were accused of something, and 
you were an unscrupulous person or you were about to be accused of a crime in a court by a certain witness and you wanted to eliminate the impact of that testimony, especially if you were guilty, what would your courses of action be? Well, the Pharisees had three courses of action. One, you can eliminate the witness. If you're guilty and someone's going to convict you in a court of law, one of the ways to, get, to make sure you can get off is eliminate the witness. You could have him killed or perhaps even threaten him so that he'll keep quiet. Does any of this sound familiar? Because this is what they're going to do, right? Ultimately, they will eliminate the witness, or at least they think they will. Secondly, you can try to discredit the witness. That is, if you could show that he does not possess good character, perhaps he's lied in court before. You could get people to discount what he has said, and that's what they tried to do in John chapter 7, verse 52 to 811. Remember, they wanted to test Jesus and entrap him. They wanted Jesus or the law of Moses. Or you could try and have his testimony thrown out of court on a technicality, which is what you're seeing here. And this should remind us this morning as we get into Christmas that unbelief never runs out of objections and unbelief never has sufficient proof. And so the agenda is simple. Call Jesus a liar publicly. Try to discredit him and tell the world, even if you listen to him, his words are lies. It's foolishness. It's made up. Can I ask you again, does any of that sound familiar in a 21st century world? Have you not encountered that yourselves? I encountered that twice this past week on a plane, witnessing to my neighbor twice. Somebody looked at me, and they were really fascinated that I was a pastor, this lady who was a businesswoman who was headed to Calgary. And I was telling her about Christ, and she literally looked me in the face, and it's been a while, but this is what she said to me. She goes, you actually read the Bible and believe it. And I'm like, yeah, I do. And she said, I didn't know people like you still existed. That's what I was asked. And now, see, some of you might be afraid of that. I was like, bring it, baby. I got you for four hours. Now you're mine. (laughs) We had a lovely discussion. We really did. And see, this is what happens. See, how often will you hear the name of Jesus put down, used as a punchline or a curse word? How often will we hear the name of Jesus discredited? How often will people even tell us, oh, well, okay, if you read the Bible, let me tell you what Jesus meant or should have meant. I think the great cause of the 21st century world is not necessarily to deny Jesus, but to make Jesus conform to our definitions. So how often will you hear over even this Christmas season, well, the Bible is out of date, it's out of touch, it needs an overhaul or better yet, to be put on the shelf and ignored. See, I don't know if you've tried to tell a friend or a coworker or a family member or neighbor that you read the Bible and trust it and listen to it and obey it and apply it to your everyday life and then watch what people do and say. See, for the religious crowd of John chapter 8 and for our world today, you just couldn't bear the weight and claim of Jesus as the light of the world. As one commentator puts it, since God was thought of in terms of light and life, that's Jehovah Yahweh, And since this claim that Jesus makes referred to the cloud of Israel's desert wandering that symbolized God's presence with the people. So when Christ says, I am the light of the world, it must have seemed almost blasphemous to his listeners. And by any standard, it was at least a claim to his right to have men and women follow him. And that's what religion said, no, can't do it. And so the reaction is now a legal matter. And Jesus mentions this in verses 14 to 18 when he he says, your law says this, and he's referring to Deuteronomy 17.6 and Deuteronomy 19.5 because Jesus now turns it against them. You see, they said it must be established by two or three witnesses. But it was funny when they pick and choose to use the Bible against Jesus because in Deuteronomy 17 and 19, this had to do with capital punishment. But here, this was just a conversation in the treasury. Now, we know that this is where Jesus arrives in the end anyway, right? Because in just six months, they would use this exact same thing. This time, they'd go and they'd pay people to witness against Jesus. 
And yet Jesus, back in John chapter 5, actually supported his claim of being God with all kinds of witnesses, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. But I want you to listen to me again. Ultimately, unbelief rejects Jesus because our agenda is not met. Plus, you'll notice that unbelief is actually never a matter of the mind or the intellect. Those are simply excuses. Unbelief is and will always be a matter of the heart. You see, when you doubt Jesus, it's not because your mind wrestles with it. It's because ultimately your heart wrestles with it. And so this is how we have to see it. And this is what you see in John chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. But now, how does Jesus react and respond? And you see it in verses 14 to 18. Notice, Jesus' authority demands we believe. Imagine if this Christmas, baby Jesus actually demanded that we believe. Because Jesus now takes the role of prosecutor. He's going to make declarations and pronounce things that have not taken place in John's gospel until John chapter 8. Notice Jesus' posture. He points out that they only view things through the physical and not the spiritual. He says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge differently. He says, religion says, I've got to see it to believe it. But Jesus, in effect, is saying, you won't recognize me or my testimony because you only look at best and see me as a man. You don't see me as the Messiah, much less as God in the flesh. Again, I love Richard Phillips, and he writes, can you imagine someone hearing Pavarotti sing an opera and then going up to him afterwards and saying, Can I see your musical credentials? Can you prove to me that you should have the right to sing? Can you imagine someone walking up to Albert Einstein and asking him for a copy of his college transcripts before he lectures on physics? For those of you that may be sports-minded, can you imagine walking up to Michael Jordan, perhaps the greatest basketball player of all time, and saying, can you show me why you should have the right to speak about basketball? I love listening to your giggles. <laughs> so far less, should anyone stand before Jesus Christ and demand evidence to prove His divine teaching? He was God in the flesh. He'd already done all kinds of miracles. To issue such a demand is merely to demonstrate one's unbelief. And Jesus validates himself. Notice in our passage it says, My testimony is true. George Hutchinson writes, The divine nature did so evidently shine in the sun that whosoever knew what a deity was was might have seen it in him. See, back in John 5, 31 to 40, Jesus gave a whole group of witnesses. But this time in John 8, he says, my testimony is true. And here's the reason, because I am God. He says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, and we are the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I have authority to judge, because notice Jesus says, I know all things. I know all things about all things. Jesus essentially says, look, I have come from God, and I'm going to God because I am God. Oh, that you would get this this Christmas. Thus, when Jesus talks about judging, he's telling his audience and us, I don't judge like you do. You see, because any time in the 21st century world, over this Christmas, if you talk to anyone about Jesus judging, they'll likely quote this verse to you. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Some of you already know what verse that is, right? Judge not, lest you be judged. That's a great verse for everybody today, especially if you tell them that God judges. And we already know, right, from John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, when Jesus says, I didn't come to condemn the world. I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save people. But what he's saying here is that because Jesus' coming demands we make a decision, the choice to reject him comes with consequences. And Jesus is saying, if you reject me as the Savior, if you reject me as Messiah, if you reject me as the Son of God, born in a manger, living as God in the flesh, who will die as your substitute and rise from the dead victorious, 
then Jesus says, I will be the holy, righteous God appointed to judge that rejection. And so Jesus ends pointing out to the leaders. Again, notice he says, your law says this, but I'm telling you as the one who gives the law, I am who I am. For I testify of myself and the Father, that is God, testifies of me and about me and for me. You see, John the Apostle must have really gotten this. Because if you read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, in 1st John 5, 9, listen to these words. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He is born concerning His Son. So thus, Jesus says in effect in our passage, I am who I claim to be. I am the bread of life in John 6. I am the light of the world in John 8. And you must decide. Accept me or reject me. And so thirdly, notice in verse 18 and 19, desperate unbelief leads to desperate accusations. Look at what they say. Where is your father? I love the way Steve read this for us this morning because he, he really put the drama in the passage as he read it and he asked that, that question. Jesus says, I am from God and God is my Father. In other words, they say, okay, if God is your Father, go get Him or tell us where He is. Now, there are two options in this question. Maybe they're still stinking physically like Jesus has just accused them so they think they are the ones getting or setting the tone and making the demands. Okay, if daddy is going to testify for you, where is he? They're doing exactly what Jesus said they would do, by the way. They're judging according to the flesh. They're still thinking and acting from a posture of sight and touch. Maybe they thought, you can't be God. Your father was Joseph and he's dead. So go get him. Oh, I bet you they were confident. Or maybe they're mocking Jesus. Oh, God is your father, is he? Then go get him yourself. And as we'll see over the next three weeks, of course, they're forgetting what John the Baptist said, what Anna said in the temple, and what Mary, the mother of Jesus, said. They're forgetting about Simeon, who saw Jesus at eight days old in the temple, Or what the wise men said when they would come to Herod and all Jerusalem shook when they said, where is he born, king of the Jews, that we may worship him? They're forgetting what shepherds did and said when they found out from angels in a field, behold, a Savior is born, which is to you Christ the Lord. They're ignoring what the voice of God Himself had said when Jesus was baptized, when the Holy Spirit of God descended on Jesus and said, Behold, this is my beloved Son. Hear Him. But finally, in verses 19 and 20, I want to end with this. Notice Jesus' loving warning while working His will. And I've chosen these words Be careful carefully. Notice it's Jesus' loving warning because Jesus finishes by pointedly telling them this in verse 19. You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Now again, you got to put yourself in that world. Imagine with me what it was like for Jesus to tell a person who has given their life to religion. You're not saved. You don't even know God. For some of you, you've been born in church. Some of you have been around religion and Christianity most of your lives. How would you feel if someone ever said to you, you know what, you're not a Christian. You don't know God. If your first reaction is angry defensiveness, I would ask you gently, why? Why? I'm telling you this is true of the city of St. John's in the province of Newfoundland. We live in a province and city that is religious but lost. We live in a city and a province that Paul said, having a form of godliness but denying the power of it. And friends, believe me when I tell you, this is a loving warning. And here's what I want you to see as we begin Christmas. Why is it a loving warning? Because you know what? 
Notice when he says these words to these people, they're alive. They're still living. They have a chance to repent. They've got a chance to come to Jesus and ask for, in, for forgiveness. In other words, something can deal, still be done. Let me make this real common. If you're addicted to drugs or alcohol, isn't it a loving warning when a doctor or a friend or a counselor tells you, stop doing this or it will kill you? Isn't that loving? If you have high blood pressure and heart disease and you've got blocked arteries, isn't it loving for the doctor to tell you to change your diet? If you have cancer, doesn't a loving, responsible doctor tell you the truth, even though the treatment might involve pain or surgery or even removal of something dear to you? Why? Because it's meant to save your life. And so church, this Christmas season, as Jeff prayed this, will you and I play with the cute and nostalgic images of Jesus blended in with mistletoe and elves? Or... Will you and I as a church think about the fact that Jesus is the light of the world who has come to serve and to heal and to make well those who will admit they are sick and need help? And so for Christmas of 2018, never forget, Jesus was indeed born to die. He comes to lay down his life for yours and mine. And notice how the passage ends in verse 20. He said these things in the treasury. And that's important. There's no random words in the Bible. John wants you and I to see that Jesus says all this in the part of the temple that was considered Pharisee territory. This is where religion was in charge. This is the Jewish authorities' domain. It's where the people gathered. It's where they show their intellect and their power and their position to the world. And it's here that Jesus says, you're not in the power, I am. You're not the answer, I am. And there's nothing they could do about it because the hour had not come for them to seize him. And so Jesus is God, church. He's come from God and the Godhead has a plan and that plan cannot be stopped. And over the next few weeks, we're going to realize that Satan couldn't stop Jesus from being born. Do you remember back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when I think Satan probably thought he won, he got Adam and Eve to sin And he probably thought, look, I've wrecked the plan. And God says to Satan, oh, I've got a plan. You might bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. Satan couldn't stop it. Herod couldn't stop it. A lack of room in Bethlehem couldn't stop it. And my friends, even unbelief will not stop the love of Jesus. Remember those words in John 1? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so for Christmas of 2018, have hope, but please be warned by Jesus' words here. Please don't go into this Christmas thinking you'll just play with Jesus again this year thinking that you can play church or play Christian or play religious and that it won't both affect and affect you. It will. The greatest of all tragedies for me in this, and I have to tell you in my life, is not to hear about Jesus and then reject Him. This lady I witnessed to for three hours on a plane to Calgary this week told me she was fascinated by me and my belief system but she wouldn't believe. Now, she did tell me I gave her a lot to think about. She told me that I could pray for her, although her words were, it won't do any good. But for me, the greatest tragedy of Christendom is to hear about Jesus and then think you've acknowledged enough of Him to make you good, only to hear those terrifying words at the end of Matthew 7. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. As we enter the Christmas season of 2018 with the fascination level of the world at an all-time high in spiritual things, with our human disposition the most tender, with our desires for something more meaningful and deeper the most attentive, dear friend, will you see Jesus for who He is and what He has done and what His love demands of you and me? And Calvary Baptist, this Christmas, 
we must be sure to be honest about what it is we act like we are celebrating versus what we actually worship. See, over the next 23 days, there'll be family gatherings and parties, special services, even anniversaries for us this year. But does our life Monday to Saturday bear out what we claim to believe on Sunday? In Matthew 6.21, didn't Jesus say, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also? And Christian friends, be warned that passionate faith is only great if it's focused towards Jesus and submits to His Word. A lot of people can have fantastic faith, but if it's not focused towards Jesus and submits to His Word, then it'll be wrong. And I'm not saying not to be zealous this Christmas or passionate or urgent. Think of who's telling you this. I'm an emotional, passionate, urgent guy. What I am saying is this. Watch this Christmas not to have unaligned spiritual passion. A zeal for the Lord that fails to line up with the totality of Scripture. Submit even your best intentions to the Word of God. And so practically, church, this Christmas, will you get out of your comfort zone? in order to comfort and befriend others? Will you spend less on yourself or your family so that your church or a hurting family or even a total stranger can know the love of Christ through you? Will you not work so hard over the next three weeks and busy yourself in your own little world and your own little social circle so that you can be more vulnerable or open to new friendships? Calvary, listen to me on our 25th anniversary, as we will celebrate that in just a couple of weeks. This church has a legacy, a faithful legacy. So many of you have been faithful for decades of standing on the Bible, of right theology, of standing against doctrinal gift, of not bowing to or giving into the culture. But this Christmas, will we also be known as being nice, loving, friendly, and welcoming into the culture? Do we truly want to see our church enlarged and growing? Because that means change. It means new people. It means new friendships. It means letting go and yet holding on. Bill Rydell put it this way, Where I once looked for the sharpest theologian in the room, I now look for the man or woman whose presence most encourages and lifts the spirits of those around him, pointing them to Jesus. I'm not telling you to give up your legacy or theology. I'm saying, let's add to it a thirst for this city. Will you take time to read this Christmas and to pray, to engage your heart and your mind as well as the hearts and minds of those around you, to concentrate on what is eternal and what counts the most? Will you and I spend time this Christmas season thinking about where your neighbors and your co-workers are going to spend eternity if they don't know Christ? And you know what? If you think, Steve, I love what you're telling me and I've been challenged and convicted, but you don't understand my life. I just don't have any time. I don't have the head space. If I'm being really honest, I don't even have the heart space to let more people in. Then now more than ever, this Christmas, you and I need to get our hearts and minds enlarged by the wonder and the greatness and the meaning of Christmas itself. Jesus was born to die. He came to serve. He he is called the friend of sinners and the lover of enemies. And folks, listen, we are called and commissioned to be like Him. And this Christmas, let us be as a church disciples and let the world call us little Christs. Let's not self-call ourselves a nickname. Too many of us want to run around the world and say, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian, yet if you read the book of Acts, we never called ourselves that. We always called ourselves disciples or followers of Christ. And the world looked at us and said, they're Christians. Let St. John's look at the way you and I talk and act and live and let them call us Christians. And so very practically as I finish, what should you take from this? Again, my grandfather, who I love and adore, said it doesn't have to be complicated to be profound. So here's your first application, Christmas of 2018. Don't trust yourself this Christmas. Don't trust yourself this Christmas. 
We must not trust our own judgment in spiritual matters. That's what John, Jesus said. Our knowledge is limited. We're not impartial or unbiased. We must not trust our own way of looking at things. That's why Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 needs to become more than just verses you've memorized as kids and kids' programs. But the way you live life, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. So Christmas of 2018, stop trusting yourself. Start trusting Jesus and His Word more. So secondly, trust Christ this Christmas. You've got to trust the word of the Lord Jesus Christ implicitly. There may be much in the Christian faith that you and I don't understand. There will be aspects of Christian truth that we don't like and we wish could be eliminated, but that's not an option for you. See, again, whatever Jesus says must be believed without question and our own reasoning on spiritual matters must be subordinate to it. And so, my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, please, please, this Christmas, read the Scriptures. I saw this little quote from Desiring God this past couple of weeks. Why read your Bible tomorrow morning? Because, number one, you cannot love God and not listen to Him. Amen. You know why you need to read your Bible tomorrow morning? Because your faith needs promises to survive. You know why you need to read your Bible tomorrow? You will become like what you behold. And please, please, men and women, don't tell me you don't read men. Oh, read your Bibles. Why? Because you will find joy you want in God's Word. Why do you need to read your Bible tomorrow morning? Because you will have good works to walk in and the Scripture will equip you. Isn't that great practical little knowledge for why you need to read your Bible tomorrow? And all through Christmas? I cannot stress how much we've got to be people who read God's Word. Ray Ortland Jr. said, This world gives us self-help books. God gave us a self-surrender book where He helps the helpless. That's why you need to read your Bible. And so finally, don't trust yourself. Trust Jesus. But accept Christ as both Savior and Lord this Christmas. If the Word of Jesus Christ is true then we should accept Him as our Savior and follow Him as our Lord. And I don't want to take anything for granted. I'm looking into faces of everybody I think that I know, but I want to ask you, have you done that? Is Jesus both your Savior and your Lord? Let me give you an example of something you might want to try personally, or maybe you can do it with that coworker or neighbor or family member, and then I'm done. I read the story of an incident that happened to a great guy. Many of you probably know this name. It's R.A. Torrey, Robert A. Torrey. He tells of a man who accepted the challenge to listen to God as both Savior and Lord. The story goes that he was lecturing to a number of his students in Chicago, and he had been confronted at the end of his lecture by a man who claimed that his experience contradicted everything that Torrey had been saying. Tori had been saying and telling and teaching how doubt in spiritual matters could be overcome. And this man felt that he had done everything Tori had suggested and yet was unconvinced. So Tori said to him, well, let us be definite about this. So calling his secretary, he dictated a letter. In front of the man he said, I believe that there is an absolute difference between right and wrong. And I hereby take my stand upon the right to follow it wherever it carries me. I promise to make an honest search to find if Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And if I find that He is, I promise to accept Him as my Savior and confess Him publicly before the world. So the secretary brought two copies. And Tori said to the man, will you sign this? And he said, certainly. Certainly as he signed one copy and returned the other to Tory, But there's nothing to it, he added, because my case is very peculiar. Now, one other thing, said Tory. Do you know that there is not a God? No, I don't know that there is not a God, was the answer. I'm an agnostic in the matter. I don't know if God exists, so I don't affirm Him or deny Him. 
So Tori said, in that case, you also do not know that God does not answer prayer. Of which the man said, that's correct. So Tori said, here is a clue for you in the search to discover if Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You must pray, and I want you to pray this. So he wrote it down. God, if there is a God, show me if Jesus Christ is your Son or not. If you show me that He is your Son, I promise to accept Him as my Savior and confess Him to be such before the world. So Tori looked at him and said, will you do that? Of which the man said, yes, I'll do that too. But there's nothing to it because my case is very peculiar. So there's one final thing. And Tori then reads to him John chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And so will you read the proof? Will you pray the prayer I have suggested each time before you come and reread Scripture? So the man replied again that he would, but he added once more that there was nothing to it. And the two men parted. Two weeks later, the two men met again in Tory's lecture hall. But this time the skeptic said, you know what, Tory? There must be something to what you told me to do. Because ever since I have done what you suggested, I feel as if I've been caught up and I'm being carried along by the Niagara River. Maybe the first thing you know is I'll, I'll be a shouting Methodist. Tory became one for the occasion and he cried out, praise the Lord. Again, Tory had to travel, and so several weeks went by in which Tory lectured in the East. But when he returned, the man was waiting for him. Now listen to me. He became a Christian, and this is his testimony. I can't understand now how I ever listened to anything else. (laughs) So if you're not yet a Christian here this morning, this can become your story if you will face the evidence. The question is, Will you face it? God does not want you to be in confusion, but in certain of your knowledge of Christian truth. And this Christmas, let us be a people and a church who believe in Jesus, and may that change us and those around us. Amen? For that will bring joy to the world. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this day. Again, Lord, I beg of you that my friends and my family, both biological and spiritual, old friends and guests and visitors here, will take a moment right now and let Jesus Christ, by His Spirit, through His Word, speak to all of us. Lord, as we begin Christmas, oh God, Slow us down. Help us to get focused. Lord, help us not to trust ourselves, but to trust you and to accept you as both Savior and Lord. Help us to reject unbelief and doubt and to embrace the truth, you and your word, and change us one and all. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.